Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I am joined again by Ben Simon for the August Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I am very good. Looking forward to some interesting papers. Absolutely, so am I. We've got four papers for our listeners, but of course I want to start with a little bit of a plug for Simulation Reconnect because it's getting time for people to register, make sure their rosters are sorted. So if you weren't there last year, uh, Simulation Reconnect, a nice little one-day symposium that we have started running at Bond. This year it's on the 15th of November, plus there's a couple of masterclasses the day before. Uh, it's a nice little friendly networking event, but of course we have some Great people speaking. Vicky LeBlanc from Canada is going to be talking about predictable chaos, how emotions guide learning and performance. Our own Jesse Spur stepping up to the podium, finding our voices as clinicians and educators. Uh, Deborah Nestelle kindly coming again. Uh, what I learned from simulation research published last year. She reads most of it. And then, of course, our good friend Ian Summers talking about confessions of a mannequin addict. Uh, so they're just a taste. There's lots more. Um, and the masterclasses, as I said, are on Tuesday. So easiest way is probably just to Google Bond Simulation uh, Reconnect and you'll either get the Bond website, but you can also get onto it from the Simulcast website. We've got a little tab there that says Simulation Reconnect. So uh, I hope you've registered, Ben. Uh, absolutely. Looking forward to it. I think you're going to kick off uh, the first of our four articles. Uh, I am, yes. So uh, I've got an article entitled Transformative Forms of Simulation in Healthcare, The Seven Simulation-Based Eyes, a Concept Taxonomy Review of the Literature. It's by uh, Sharon Marie Weldon et al. and published in iJOS recently. And look, this article puts forward a taxonomy for breaking down the different forms of what they call non-pedagogical sim i.e., you know, sim that is being run where the primary goal is not educational. So the authors argue that actually things are pretty messy when it comes to simulation methodology outside of educational fields. It's a little bit of a um, new frontier. And so with that, you know, methods can seem pretty ad hoc. Terms are getting a bit intermingled and they come from different fields. And, and so our practices for what they call transformational simulation often get mixed up with educational principles, which maybe aren't necessarily the right choice for the actual goals that we have. So methods-wise, the authors describe that they've got this challenge that a traditional lit review probably isn't going to find all of the different terms and ideas that are scattered across different types of journals. And they really wanted to synthesize and bring together what we understand about the literature of this non-pedagogical sim. So they did what they call a pearl-growing, snowballing review of the literature, which I'd have to confess, Vic, I didn't fully understand the process from reading this article. But basically, it sounded like a lot of searching the literature using a variety of terms and then reading the papers that came up. And then you search those papers, citations for more papers, and so on and so forth. So a pretty big job. Uh, and from that, the primary author identified five categories from a literature review themselves, and then they 
In addition to the lit review, I identified two more categories through a series of online and in-person workshops in quite a variety of formats and social media strategies. So it sounds like quite a lot of work over an extended period. And while uh, it eluded me a little bit to the full depth of it, certainly couldn't replicate it, it does make sense that this is a pretty good way to really go, well, actually, we've got a problem even with where we're storing these terms and, and knowledge and publishing them, and we've got to look pretty far and wide. So they note over 68 terms were used in their literature search to describe different types of simulation activities with a variable focus on location, on the level of realism, or the purpose of the sim. And so after having looked at all this stuff, the co-authors have proposed this umbrella term, transformative simulation, to describe simulation as a tool to transform health and care through collective understanding, insight, and learning. And underneath that banner, they have seven eyes for different subtypes of simulation. So they've got innovation, which is for the introduction of a new process or altering what is established. I for improvement, which is, you know, making the thing that we're doing, but doing it better. Uh, intervention, which is intervening or interfering in something to affect its course. Involvement, to engage or implicate people. Uh, identification, which is sort of what we would often probably refer to as diagnostic simulation, to identify what or who is happening in a particular process. Inclusion, so including key stakeholders to share, empower, and enable. And Influence, which is to work influentially on something, whether it be a process that you want to embed or an idea or a, or a cultural innovation. So uh, I might just stop there, Vic, because I can see you nodding. Oh, well, I'm just loving the fact that they've turned that into a rainbow. I did like the rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> the diagram, it is seven. It is actually it's quite rainbow. nice. Um, look, and i gotta, I got to confess, I don't love the seven eyes. Um it's not an acronym, which thankfully I, I hate acronyms even more than seven <laughs> single ledgers, but it does for me make it actually hard for me to differentiate in my head or recall it all. It's been like trying to remember the names of all the seven dwarves. It, I, I take your point and I, I also wonder about the utility of it. So in what, why would we be categorizing our work according to one of these things. Now, maybe there's a very good reason, but I think it's always tricky when you're at this nascent point of a field that may or may not become more obvious as to how useful that taxonomy is. Um, now, I'm no expert on taxonomy papers, and I guess you've got to take a leap somewhere. All of these are a little bit around what's the purpose of them, which is a good conversation to have. Uh, but I always think it's hard to go past that original 2004 David Garber article where he's got those dementias of simulation on little sliders. And I think talking about a taxonomy, uh, be able to have a multi-dimensional taxonomy that says, sure, the purpose is one of those things, uh, as are some of those other characteristics of the simulation. And, and maybe, uh, you know, this is an advance on that, but I guess it's just a matter of thinking, why are we doing that? I think the idea of talking about non-pedagogical simulation is a, not a bad starting point, although I'm thinking all the uh, people I know who hate describing things by what they're not. Uh, so I can see why there's a search for some consistency, uh, and yet it, it's hard. I think this just illustrates that increasingly simulation is a versatile tool that might, it f may find itself in all kinds of literature and spaces and 
fields of endeavor? And do we need to even gather it together under the umbrella of simulation? And I think that's a really fundamental question. And some of us have probably tried to do that a little bit, but maybe that's the wrong thing. Very deep. Um, I think the thing that threw me as well is the term transformative sim is then being used to describe non-pedagogical sim. And I'm sure they have good reason, but within that definition, they then say to transform care through collective understanding, insight, and learning. And so the learning Mm. kind of then muddies the water about where that line in the sand is a little bit for me as well. Um, Yeah. So look, after after going through these eyes, uh, the paper then takes us through some nice case examples of each subtype uh, that exist in the literature, including some of your work, Vic. Um, and in the discussion, they acknowledge how varied our terminology currently is within the sim community, how scattered that can make our approach, and they hope that by providing this taxonomy, we can start to ring into focus the different types of sim and consider how to approach each one with more nuance and specificity, which I think was pretty fair. Again, one of the tricky things is even what is SIM. Uh, And I see we've had wonderful efforts from the Society for Simulation Healthcare to create a healthcare dictionary, a healthcare simulation dictionary to address some of this. Uh, But of course, like all language, meaning evolves over time. Sometimes it coalesces and starts to become consistent and sometimes it just expands. And Mm. uh, I guess I'm just looking forward to seeing how that goes. And I think these sorts of discussions are helpful. I doubt the authors think this is the end game of this conversation. And, you know, anything that is a little bit of pearl harvesting or whatever it is, that just sounds great, doesn't it? Absolutely. And snowballing. You get Mm. like a lot of fun. (laughs) But I guess, uh, and this will be relevant for the next article that I do, sort of describing your search strategy is important. And clearly, this is even a step back from a critical review or a narrative review. They've said up front and center, there's no systematic kind of technical approach to finding these. It really is a sense of what's happening out in the literature and trying to find a way that they can explain how they found what they found and reviewed it. Which I thought they argued for pretty fairly. Mm, Agreed. Mm. So we need a a Society for Simulation in Healthcare dialect dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whether we need it, we've probably already got it. (laughs) Some of the acronyms flying around, absolutely. Um, All right, so our next paper is called Older Adults as Simulated Participants, a Scoping Review. And this is from Kathy Smith, uh, Namat Al-Saba, Deborah Nestel, and Lisa Sokoloff, uh, people who are very experienced and already published on all things SPs. And, of course, Namat works with us at Bond and at Gold Coast. So uh, I enjoyed this immensely. Also from uh, IJOS just recently. So there's two reasons for putting this paper in. One is briefly to discuss scoping reviews and to talk about methodology. Um, but the main point is to talk about this concept of older adult uh, simulated patients or simulated participants. So the background to this is uh, we know that uh, the care of older adults is important and it's hard because there are more people who are older adults in our community and they have more complex health needs. Uh, maybe simulation can help, but uh, the guidance on how to design, deliver, co-create simulations, particularly those involving SP methodology, um, is not quite there. So I think they were trying to, and I quote, aim to do a scoping review to explore and summarize what is known about working with older SPs in healthcare provider education. 
Uh, so aimed to build on existing work that had already been done a lot by the authors of this paper. So what did they do? They did a scoping review and uh, they described that in the paper and including the sort of landmark reference Arxi and O'Malley uh, for how to do a scoping review. And just to sort of briefly say that, it's pretty logical. You identify the research question, identify the articles uh, and illustrate graphically their search process, select out the ones that are relevant, uh, and then what's called charting the data, so going through there and drawing out the um, key issues and then reporting the results. Now, uh, we did this at our EDGE group and we had a bit of discussion about how a scoping review is different to a systematic review, different to a narrative review. There's many cleverer words written about that than, than I'm going to be able to articulate. But I think the short summary of that is a scoping review is very appropriate in a field where you're likely to have a broad range of literature of different methodologies and different purposes that you want to still draw out what are some of the key issues that are emerging uh, in this uh, area of practice, unlike a systematic review where you're probably relying on a bit more heterogeneity and maybe a narrower question like, I'm going to make something up like, are SPs better than mannequins? That would be a ridiculous question. But let's say you had a question like that, and if there was lots of literature, you could do a systematic review, uh, whereas this is a broad uh, what is known about working with older SPs. Uh, So what did they actually find when they did this? Uh, As with many scoping reviews, they started out with many hundreds of articles, narrowed it down, and found that 12 were in scope. And that's actually not unusual for the scoping reviews that I've read. And again, they did have these articles, diverse methodologies and aims. And they highlighted four broad topics uh, in this, what is known about working with older adult SPs. The first was terminology, just as we illustrated, uh, saying that SPs were variably described as a standardized patient, simulated patient, simulated participants, actors. And I think we know this terminology question is a big one. The second topic was about conceptualizing SP roles and scenarios. So this is a bit about how do people describe the scripts, the scenarios, the blueprints, uh, what sort of things get described in terms of demographics, the characters, the backstories, their appearance, uh, what kind of prompts are given in these scenario outlines for the people who are engaged in the role portrayal um, and what sort of information is given about scenario setting and objectives. Uh, the third topic is about how SPs are prepared for their roles, including recruitment, training, and how they participate in feedback and debriefing with learners. And then the fourth one is about what they called scenario implementation. So looking at uh, what kind of scenarios are these. And they, again, were diverse, ranging from OSCEs and assessment to things that had very specific curricular aims uh, within um educational programs. So they were the kind of four topics. And I think as they had anticipated, they're pretty broad. And in their discussion, uh, they probably moved to a little bit of an advocacy stance, I would say, in their discussion in terms of wanting to move this area of practice along a little bit, saying that because there were inconsistent approaches and reporting details, one of their first calls was to try and get more consistent reporting strategies. Uh, They highlighted the need to Think carefully about the well-being and psychological safety of older SPs. Uh, one of the other things they zeroed in on was diversity and inclusion, in that there was little explicit emphasis in this in the papers they came across. And unsurprisingly, if you've got something involving Deborah Nestel, uh, words matter. And again, 
thinking not just about the way we refer to what we mean by SPs, but also things like talking about working with as opposed to using SPs. And uh, again, how language changes, the idea of older adults being a transition from terms that are now a bit negatively laden like seniors and the aged and elderly. So I thought this pretty tidy, probably a nice capture of uh, what is going on in the literature in that area, which again, may not reflect all the practice in that area. And uh, I think it gives us a bit of work to do uh, for those of us who are working with older SPs and indeed SPs in general. So thoughts, Ben? Uh, yeah, look, I always just find it such a delight to read a Deborah Nestel article from a methods point of view, mm-hmm. um, because I always find them so instructional in terms of both the process and what was found um it's just kind of a master class in how to describe methods in a way that gives you like an instant clarity about what the process look like and where the claims of the article come from so i really really enjoyed that and i agree there's definitely a stance of advocacy within this which um i can't imagine nomat not taking an advocacy totally. stance with this mm-hmm. as you as i've said before on simulcast one of my favorite things in the world is uh watching one of the most gentle people i know uh have fire light up in her eyes when uh, we start talking about the either mistreatment or the um, stereotyping of older patients within simulation. And I really admire that about Matt. Um, so look, it wasn't a huge amount of practice changing take homes for me from the article itself beyond agreeing with the importance of engaging with older SPs in the appropriate context. And I continue to be a fan of the authors uh, when it comes to advocacy regarding the same. Yes, uh, paradoxically, this impact of this article might be slightly less on us because we've been exposed to these ideas uh, more closely, thank you to Nomat and others. Mm. But I think it will be a bit of an eye-opener for a lot of others. Uh, Yeah, Well done and thank you. Yes. All right, we're going to continue in this vein of SPs but take a slightly different approach both to methodology and context. So this next paper is called The Use of Virtual Standardised Patients for Practice in High-Value Care. And this is by uh, William Bond et al. and a group from uh, Illinois in the United States published in Simulation in Healthcare. And I think there's two parts to this paper, Ben. The first is just thinking about the use of virtual simulated patients, particularly in an age of um, uh, natural language processing and AI. And then the second part is thinking about the role of simulation to improve rational test ordering or cost-conscious care or high-value care, as they talk about. So I'll give, a, as they do in the article, the brief background about both of these topics. Uh, So the first is a discussion about these virtual simulated patients. By this, we're talking about essentially screen-based avatars, uh, but who are able to have a conversation with a budding or experienced healthcare professional uh, because of some clever uh, technology called natural language processing, which means the computer knows a whole bunch of text or other conversations. And so I was able to know that when one person says hello, the other person says hello back, and then a much more advanced uh, way of truly interacting with the learner, for instance, taking a history from that virtual simulated patient. Now, I am no expert on that, but it makes sense that if you feed enough data in there, uh, you can get a natural kind of uh, conversation that's coming without people having to script line by line, which I guess we might have been doing 20 years ago. 
So then the uh, context for this is this high value care. And again, this is probably not new to people in clinical practice, but just to sort of recap, this is getting to the idea that actually, quite frankly, a lot of what we do in healthcare is not very high value. We order too many tests for the wrong patients. uh, And there are particular conditions in which we've identified some opportunities to reduce that over investigation. And they narrow in on that. So the context here is um, there are certain red flag symptoms that should prompt testing. And the absence of those symptoms should mean we're free of having to do MRI scans for every back pain uh, or go on and do coronary angiograms for every chest pain. So this is the kind of conversation that we're trying to help our junior learners navigate and get skills in how to identify appropriate test ordering. The idea here is that by simulating some of these conversations and practicing uh, getting familiar with the stories, that uh, budding uh, healthcare professionals will have better abilities to uh, do that. Uh, that's not something I had in my medical school curriculum. What about you? No, definitely not. And I, I do kind of feel sorry for med students. And I feel like like just learning the medicine stuff is quite a lot. And then we keep adding more things to try and prepare them to be f- complete physicians. And I just feel like sometimes just let them be in the zone of proximal development where you're working out what a spleen is. Like <laughs> that took me a good six months. Like. <laughs> Um, at the oh, same true. time, though, I guess, mm. you know, the, the counter-argument is, you know, this is a deeply enculturated, mm-hmm. systematic problem that we have of desperately not wanting to miss things and over-investigating everybody that has genuine patient harm. So, I guess if you're going to um, pop that in early, it does make sense on the other hand, you know? So, yeah. tricky balance to get right. All right, so what did they do in this study? Uh, This involved medical students in Illinois, and they were participating in what's called a high-value care curriculum. So there were other educational elements to this. They were getting lectures and uh, materials to help them understand the problem and how they could uh, do rational test ordering. And But there were two parts that involved simulation. The first one was their virtual simulated patient component where Uh, one-on-one with a computer they engaged with the case on a screen they had to come up then with a differential diagnosis for what was going on and decide what test to order Uh, in a couple of these presentations that involved uh, I think low back pain heartburn and headache Uh, and they got a grading and they got a sort of automated feedback so this was something that was pretty light on for needing instructor input Um, The virtual simulated patient, though, just gave them the history. They didn't actually engage in any shared decision-making with the provider. And then the students also did a simulated patient component. So this involved a live human being actor, what we might call simulated patient methodology. Uh, So it was a bit like with the virtual simulated patient. They learnt a case and they had certain history that was consistent. Uh, But also the simulated patients engaged in a bit of, I really want the test or I really don't want the test. So a little bit more need for the student to engage in a conversation about whether to order the test in conjunction with the patient. And in this case, the faculty were observing and rating them and giving some uh, feedback, uh, as were the simulated patients. So they did this and then 
they did a range of statistics to try and look at how well did students do in the virtual simulated patients and in the SPs, and then also correlated them with their USMLE results. So it was a very intensive process. And to be honest, that wasn't the main part of the paper that grabbed me with this. Uh, they also looked and found, unsurprisingly, that the attitudes towards the concepts around high-value care improved, and that's probably a outcome in itself, uh, but they didn't have anything dramatic that came out in terms of proving that this worked better than others. And in their discussion, I think they made a modest claim, which I think is true, that you, they had successfully integrated these virtual simulated patients into their curriculum, and it provided, and I quote, an additional opportunity for deliberate practice for novice learners to think about how do you uh, identify red flags in a or identify the absence of red flags in a history that means you don't need to order tests. So I, I think that's good. I don't know that we needed all the statistics and comparison to come up with that outcome. It just seemed to me to make a lot of sense that this virtual standardized patients have a place in helping us with any kind of assessment process. Uh, but I think it, we will see much more of this because of uh, the rise and improvement in natural language processing and AI. So, uh, yeah, bring on the VSPs, Ben, but only as a small part of a more integrated curriculum. Yeah. Um, did you did you watch the YouTube video? No, I did not. Yeah, yeah I clicked on that because they have a video demonstration of the avatar. Um, it was quite cool. The, yeah. Uh, I always like the style where you actually just skip the uncanny valley and they're slightly cartoonish looking. Um, and the content of the speech was quite good. The What's interesting to me is that actually the tech now is so amazing with what they're going to say, but the auditory quality is still really, really mechanical and electronic sounding. There's kind of a dichotomy there in terms of where our auditory realism is, I guess. But, um, you know, it does, I feel like we're reading a few papers now where we keep trying to prove a virtual option is better than a real option and they kind of always seem to come to the same conclusion which is oh there wasn't really much of a difference what are we doing that actually has impact and everyone seems to learn no matter what we do um which is kind of tricky <laughs> tricky and depressing at the same time um so i guess the only thing for me is philosophical like i worry about something that says patient-centered as value-based care and like you mentioned the virtual group don't rehearse um, shared decision making and I think that's a key component of um, triaging the decisions and the tests that you make and so there is the risk there of some negative training where we're saying oh we're going to be really patient-centered but all you need to do is take a history and then uh, you decide the test for them which you know is maybe a little bit risky there was my only worry but uh, I think yeah and I think this is actually more perennial dilemma in education, health professions education, uh, do you take things out and try and uh, build up skills individually and then integrate them together? Or do you from the get-go say, well, a history taking isn't really a taking exercise at all. It's a discussion consultation process. And so right from the get-go, it has to be dynamic and an interplay between the needs of two people. <laughs> uh, it isn't just a, I'm going to take my history from you and then I'll let you know what the plan is. Uh, and, and as you say, I think, unfortunately, the way this virtual standardized patient is set up, uh, it could reinforce that message unintendedly. Um, so I guess we, uh, we watch with interest. And I, 
I think with anything where you try and codify something, you lose something because, as we know, a lot of presentations are nowhere near as uh, clear cut as this. And uh, but does that mean this isn't a good place to start? Not necessarily. I think it's just really important to know the place within a broader educational um, plan. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, it was very cool. I enjoyed the tech, actually. It was one of the highlights for me. I think we're going to see so much more of that. And given that we do know volume helps, this is where where the VSPs are going to be good because if you can uh, crank through 30 of those and then you come and you're ready to engage with a uh, human simulated patient and real faculty, then hopefully you can build on some core skills. Hmm. Uh, so the last paper that we're going to talk about tonight is uh, a very reflective piece. So it's entitled Role Clarity and Interprofessional Colleagues in Psychological Safety, a Faculty Reflection. And it's by Laura Klenker-Borgman et al. and published in uh, as a concept and commentary piece within Simulation in Healthcare. And so look, the, the problem gap hook kind of proposal of this article is essentially that we know psych safety is important. We know the principles of what that should feel like, uh, but there isn't a huge amount of literature that's reporting on the specifics of factors that actually influence the building, maintaining and repairing of psych safety. We've got lots of ideas, but um, we, there's not a lot of specifics sometimes. So what I like about this paper mainly is that it's a reflective piece on two psych safety breaches that occurred during, occurred during some sims run by the authors and a deconstruction of what they think lead to it. Um, and this is the type of paper that we have seen before, we, you know, we see sometimes, but it's not super frequent, hey. And I do love a good public discourse about a particular failure, A, because I admire the authors for publishing it, and B, I think it's really valuable learning that really adds to the literature. So I just really appreciate the contribution. Um, the authors basically described two studies that they were involved in coordinating as doctoral students in the US, and both involved pretty large groups of about 50 nursing students with some fairly quantitative research questions in them. So one was trying to work out whether repeated exposure to multi-patient SIMS influenced time management and prioritization for nursing students. And then the second one was whether repeated observation of intraprofessional SIMS influenced clinical judgment. So the sims involved in those research studies involved, you know, pre-briefs that ticked off the usual criteria, fiction contract, logistics, confidentiality, mutual respect. But both studies led to, uh, quote unquote, considerable anxiety and stress to the point that uh, it interrupted individual participation. And in the multi-patient sim, three participants essentially froze became teary and overwhelmed, and they described feeling cognitively stuck and they withdrew from the simulated area. And then two of the three participants returned and one withdrew from the course. In the interprofessional sim, though, this got a little bit more unpleasant, I'd have to say, with uh, several nursing students being randomised to a team leader role, but then experiencing what sounds like some pretty disappointing uh, shade from some of the med students who were also participating. So there was eye rolling, there was some derogatory comments about the realism of having a team leader who's a nurse, um, and some couple of bitter comments at the end like, well, we just killed the patient. Uh And this led to withdrawn participation in the debrief and another nursing student reporting feeling pretty intimidated by the med students and then one person lashing out a little bit in the debrief itself. 
And so all of these breaches were identified and they had appropriate individual follow-up. Although I note that the paper doesn't mention any follow-up for the med students. It's very much focused on the nursing staff who were involved. Um, but after describing these events, the authors deliberately reflect on the process and they identify, pretty unsurprisingly, that ticking off those primary pre-brief goals and delivering a high fidelity simulation doesn't prevent adverse events from happening. And there's some appropriate reflection on the importance of role clarity. And within that, they kind of allude to the fact that maybe throwing nursing students into a multi-patient sim could be a factor, although I really wish they dug in there because to me that, that zone of proximal development thing is really just key learning here. Um, what I quite like as well is there's an acknowledgement that most of our psych safety literature is focused on the actions of the facilitator, but a huge component of psych safety is how participants treat each other, and that's just not fully within our control when we can't anticipate it. So the authors recommend emphasizing mutual respect and socializing interprofessional colleagues. And they make a couple recommendations in preparing nursing students uh, and their colleagues, which are setting clear expectations regarding scope of practice, collaboration and respect, uh, supporting the socialization of nursing students through modeling and reflecting before simulated experiences, to create a culture of curiosity for nursing students about expectations and responsibilities in their new professional roles. Uh, they argue that in IPE, we should set clear boundaries for discussion and behaviours uh, and to inform participants on the principles of professional engagement and factors that create a psychologically safe environment before every simulated event. And then they mention intentionally threading in team steps training earlier in nursing and med school curriculums. And look, Vic, I've got to, I've got to be a little bit spicy here. And then I really respect the authors uh, for having a think and, and sharing their reflections. But I can't say I completely agree with these recommendations at all. Um, and that's fine. Every qualitative review of something is going <laughs> to come to the biases of the person yeah, who's reading yeah, yeah. it. But I feel like these are kind of really well-intentioned, but also kind of a safety one approach to very specific things that happened um, in that, yes, if you did those things, maybe there would be slightly less of that one thing that happened in that particular sim. But uh -huh. I really deeply worry that we keep thinking of our pre-briefs as some kind of list that if we eventually tick off enough things, psych safety will be generated. And for me, I think you know, the real key message here is that psych safety is a shared construct and it is co-created by facilitators and learners and it is influenced by pre-existing local dynamics between different craft groups and that no pre-brief can fully prevent adverse behaviours from happening. I think that stress is really heavily influenced by placing novice students in situations that are designed deliberately to overwhelm them. And that stress could potentially be mitigated through both designing a sim that doesn't overload them when you're only a new nursing student. And secondly, through probably more active intervention mid-simulation and during the debrief when inappropriate comments and behaviours occur. And I think they do deserve to pat themselves a bit on the back in terms of the fact that, sure, there was a breach, but there was also repair. Mm. Um, and there was clearly... In appropriate recognition and intentional repair of that psych safety during the interventions that the authors actually did. Any mm. thoughts? Uh, I'm inclined to agree. I think just creating more structural elements to the psychological safety of facilitator actions 
won't necessarily get at every dynamic situation that emerges. And I agree. I mean, I, I do say we should aim to promote psychological safety and mitigate against the threats to it, but it, none of these things are perfect. And like you, I was actually quite hungry to know a little bit more about these simulations because I think one of the biggest threats to psychological safety is putting people in situations that they wouldn't be in. And I think scenario design is under uh, appreciated as a threat to psychological safety. Why were either medical or nursing students being a team leader in a sim that if it involved something that was a patient who was very critically unwell, uh, that's actually, of course, is going to be overwhelming. And I can even explain without excusing uh, some of those comments by medical students. Just you can imagine this throwaway cynical line, oh, we killed the patient if people themselves are feeling overwhelmed, threatened, and as an ego defense for that medical student, which then next step on uh, is perceived as incivility um, and affront by the nursing students who are there. So you can see, in fact, some of this might have been generated by scenario design being not quite right. Now, I don't know because we didn't know the details of this, but I certainly have seen myself uh, in sims that I have uh, designed and delivered. When that pitch is wrong, you start to set yourself on some psychological safety thin ice. I couldn't agree more. And it's like one of my favorite rants is <laughs> like I, I just keep watching people with good intention go, I'm going to teach people how to speak up or um, deal with a stressful multi-professional team by creating a stressful situation and throwing a whole bunch of people together to do poorly. And then you watch the sim go badly. And then 20 minutes after the debrief, three people are crying and, um, and they're thinking it's because surprised? of the behaviors that happened in the sim. You're like, yeah. no, no, this was a design flaw. Like this is, yeah. th this was not, you know, if we subject people to unfair, uh, situations where they are pushed heavily into a threat response rather than a challenge response um, without preparing them and without training them to the point where that's helpful for them. That is not a, you know, it's a psych safety breach, sure, but it's, it's not on the participants or the aggressive behavior that we generate by putting people in unfair situations and then having a natural reaction to it. Mm. And I think that is up and down the spectrum and across the mm. professions. Mm. Uh, I think I, I see that in consultant level providers in the medical um, field uh, and in other professions as well. It doesn't matter where you are if you throw people in and they're given something to do that they wouldn't normally do and they don't understand the rules of the game, then uh, I suspect that's a sim you shouldn't have run because you were setting yourself up for that. And unfortunately, because simulation has come from a lot of traditions of resuscitation and uh, urgent and critical care situations, uh, those things are very common. Yeah, hundred percent. Mm. All right. Well, we've had a we've had a mutual rant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always it's satisfying. not at all to I discredit this paper yeah. at all, but uh, it just pricked one of the uh, nerves I think we both share. Uh, but I want to go back to your first point and say, I agree. I feel like there's so few of them, but these things where people 
offer up their experience that has had lapses are so instructive and yet clearly we're not inclined to do that and so I think uh, authors illustrating their own vulnerability and thinking and reflecting on how they can uh, try and have a better situation with their own work is, is very valuable and lovely role modeling for the rest of us. Yeah, I agree. And um, I really liked how they framed that within the article as well about um, seeing it as their ethical responsibility after yeah, uh, reading totally. other ones. So yeah. uh, hats off to them. And I really appreciate them uh, sharing with such humility, vulnerability and uh, integrity. Mm. All right. Well, another four lovely papers, Ben. I hope mm-hmm. you've got a good August uh, lined up. We've got a big August. Yeah, we've got a big few months coming up. Lots of travel. So things will be good. All right. Well, Simulcast listeners, you've had uh, lots about SPs today, a bit about psychological safety, and a bit about taxonomies um, in simulation of a non-pedagogical nature. Uh, Don't forget Simulation Reconnect. Uh, Happy listening for August, and we'll look forward to seeing you in the September Simulcast Journal Club. But thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. A lovely night. All right. This is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 